Heavenly Father, just as you gave Cornelius and Peter visions to see clearly the work that you were going to do in taking the gospel to the Gentiles that sinners like us even this day might be saved, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a proper vision as well, that we might see the great work of Jesus Christ and how it went beyond Jerusalem, beyond Samaria, beyond Judea, into the Greek world then, and then even as far as San Jose today. Help us to see clearly, Father, that you are in the process of creating a family like no other, a family made up of people from all different walks of life, different religions, different backgrounds, and in that great work, you are making for yourself a holy people, a nation set apart for your glory. We want to see that clearly this morning, Father, and not only rejoice in the fact that you brought us into this family, but that we would be faithful messengers like Peter, like Cornelius, and bring the same gospel and the same hope to those in our mission field who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray, Father, that you would use this narrative to encourage us and to embolden us, that we might cross lines of culture and age and economics and that we might bring the gospel to those that we might not be comfortable talking to, and that you would take the work of your saints here and do what only you can do, and that is bring in a great harvest. We're so thankful that you are a God who saves and redeems many. We are here, and we are testimonies to that fact, that you save the least and the last. I pray, Lord, that you would put it upon our hearts, give us a deep love for the lost, that we might engage in this great family work. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if you're not in Acts chapter 10, please open your Bibles. I want you to look at the narrative with me. We made it to Acts 10. (laughs) That's a good thing. Um, We're about a half year in, I think, so we got about another year, I would say, maybe more to get through. Uh, This is a longer narrative. I know, don't don't look like that's a bad thing, okay? That's going to discourage your pastor. Um, by the time we get to 10, though, uh, the church in Jerusalem's come a long way. It certainly is not the church at Pentecost, right? I mean, we've seen the martyrdom of Stephen. We saw the scattering of the Hellenistic Jews, and they went out to Samaria and to Judea. We saw the conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus, who will become the great Apostle Paul in the church. We saw uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw the gospel go to Lydda and to Joppa and all the way up the coast to Caesarea. And so multitudes are repenting and putting their faith in Christ. Churches are being planted and God is being glorified. In other words, we get to Acts 10 and no longer is the church secluded to the city of Jerusalem and to Jews only. It has gone beyond the walls of Jerusalem and Gentiles by the thousands are being saved. Why is that happening? Because that's God's plan. That's what God has decreed from the beginning to create a family for his own glory, made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But this Gentile mission, as it moves beyond the Jewish culture and moves beyond Jerusalem, it caused real tension in the early church. Um, There were two major issues we're going to look at beginning today and as we work our way through this narrative with Cornelius. Issue number one was, did the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christian? Did they have to go through the Jewish proselyte process, which meant for males, you got to get circumcised. Not good. And for all males and females, they had to subscribe to all the dietary regulations and the purification regulations, what they could touch, what they could not touch. 
The second major question involved table fellowship. It was not allowed for a Jew to eat at a Gentile's table. Um, But in the Mediterranean culture, as we looked at a few weeks back, to invite someone into your home and to sit at the table and to eat was a sign of intimacy. And so to have that barrier within the church would have been problematic. Jews not eating with Gentiles, nor Gentiles with Jews. And so how do we look at the Gentiles coming into the church? And how do we deal with this concept of of clean and unclean things? These two questions were actually, they're going to be answered, not yet. We're going to have to wait until we get to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where we're going to get a definitive response from the church in Jerusalem. But the foundation for their decision on how Jews were to relate to Gentiles and how Gentiles came into the church, the grounding here is in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And that's one of the reasons that Luke spends so much time on it. It's the longest single narrative in the entire book. It begins here in chapter 10, verse 1, and goes all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. Uh, It's lengthy, not only because it addresses this critical issue of what is required to come into the family of God, who can come in, but I think even more importantly, it sets the stage for how Christians are to relate to other people people of different tribes and tongues and nations. How are we to love one another and how are we to receive one another? And so the narrative is divided up into three parts and I'm gonna give you three parts. If I did all the way through chapter 11, verse 18, you might have fallen out of your chair before Kirk had finished reading. So I'm not not gonna do that to you. Part one, beginning in chapter 10, verse one, going through chapter, uh, verse 23, the first part of 23, it really sets the stage. Peter gets a vision, Cornelius gets a vision, and then they're going to come together in part two next week where we'll look at verses 24 to 48, and that's where Peter's in Cornelius' house, the gospel's shared, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And then when we get to chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he has to justify everything that happened. He has to explain to the church why all these Gentiles are now part of the church and what he's doing in chapter 11 is he begins to cast the vision for the Gentile mission of which the Apostle Paul would become the chief agent. Uh, So this morning we're just going to do part one. We're going to set the stage for this grand encounter between the Apostle Peter and the Gentile centurion Cornelius. And in setting the stage, it is my hope that we as a church would see the very big picture that God has for human history. The very big picture that God has for his church and his family. And I want to look at three points. Number one, God's eclectic family. Number two, God's unified family. And number three, God's universal family. That God's family from the very beginning has planned to be eclectic, it's planned to be unified, and it's planned to be universal. So if I were to give you a theme for the sermon, it would be this. God's family is bigger and better than you ever dreamed. God's family, of which you are a part if you are in Christ, is bigger and better than you have ever dreamed. All right? Are you ready? Number one, God's eclectic family. So the narrative begins introducing us to Cornelius. We've got to know who this guy is. He plays a significant role here in these next two chapters. And we're told that he's a Roman centurion living in Caesarea. Look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, now Caesarea was a coastal city about 60 miles almost due north of Jerusalem. Um, and it was a city that had a, a Roman governor, um, and it was truly, it lived up to its name. It was a Hellenistic city, truly Greek and truly Roman by nature. Um, it was actually built by Herod the Great, 
And Herod did things big. And so they had, they had their own racetrack. Uh, they had their own um, temple to, dedicated to Caesar. They had their theater. They had a harbor. Um, and at the time of Peter's visit, the tension between the majority Gentiles and the minority Jews was significant. And so it made for a fitting place for God to come and reveal how he was going to, through the gospel, add to his family from people from all walks of life. That he was going to bring the healing power of the gospel into this Hellenistic city and show how the Jews were to embrace the Gentiles and the Gentiles, the Jews. Luke tells us that Cornelius was, look at verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So Cornelius, although he is a Gentile, he worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Jews. He worshipped the God of the Bible. And it says here that he was a devout, God-fearing man. Now, that term God-fearing, that's a technical term. We think of it in someone who has a right fear of the Lord, and that's not wrong. But it was a technical term. It was someone who um, would attend the synagogues, not able to worship fully because they hadn't become a Jew yet. So they hadn't gone through the proselytation process in order to practice um, worshiping God as a Jew. But he shows his evidence of being a devout God-fearer by two things. One, he gives to the poor, he gives generously. And number two, he was a, a man of prayer. And those were two marks of a faithful Jew. A faithful Jew gave faithfully, prayed faithfully, and fasted. And we're told that on one day as he was faithfully praying at 3 p.m., and that was one of the three times set aside in the day for Jews to pray, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Look at verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Now, terror is probably not the best uh, word here. I'm sure that there was a sense of awe and wonder, but he answers back, what is it, Lord? He's praying to God. He's a God-fearing man, and he's receiving this angelic messenger. The latter part of verse 4, And the angel said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Verse 5, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So remember, we left off last week. Peter's still in Joppa. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, and he's staying there because of the great harvest. Remember, God was saving many through the resuscitation of Tabitha. Many were hearing, many were believing, many were coming to a saving grace. And so Cornelius, the angel leaves, and Cornelius wastes no time. He gathers two servants and a devout soldier. And maybe a devout soldier as in he knew the Lord also, or maybe just a devout soldier in that he was faithful and would do the work that Cornelius was calling him to do. And he, he tells them what the angel said, and he sends them off to Joppa to get Peter. Right? That's what he's supposed to do, bring Peter back. Cornelius does not know why, but no doubt he's filled with joy. He hears the angel say to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. What joy and what anticipation must have filled Cornelius' heart thinking, what is God going to do? What is God doing right now? In fact, the term memorial, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before the Lord, that is an Old Testament sacrificial term. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 2. 
The priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial on the altar, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In other words, Cornelius' devotion, his faithfulness in prayer, his faithfulness in giving was recognized and remembered by God. And the angel tells him that. It wasn't done in vain. Even though you're not a Jew, God has heard your prayers. He's seen your heart and he has remembered it. Now this is not a a quid pro quo. This is not a works righteousness encounter between God and Cornelius. Be very careful. God did not say because you prayed and because you gave to the poor, I'm going to bless you. The prayers and the almgivings were a a product of Cornelius' heart. And God loved the heart that he saw. The prayer and the almsgiving was evidence that his heart was already surrendered to God. And it was a sweet aroma to the Lord. And therefore, the Lord received it and remembered it and was going to bless Cornelius and his household as a result. 1,000 years prior, when Solomon was dedicating the temple to God in 2 Chronicles 7, This was God's promise to his people. Listen very closely. God said, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God said, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's the great promise. At the dedication of the temple, a thousand years before this encounter between Peter and Cornelius, that God made to his people Israel. He said, if you humble yourself, if you pray to me, if you seek my face, if you turn from your sins, then I will hear you, I will forgive your sins, and I will heal you. I will heal your land. And now, my beloved, this great promise is going beyond the biological descendants of Abraham. It is being extended. This is going to be that moment where it's going to be extended to all people in all places at all times who do the exact same thing. Anyone who seeks after God's face in humility, anyone who turns from their sins, anyone who cries out to God, have mercy upon me in Christ, God says, I will love them and I will hear them and I will forgive their sins and I will heal them. And I will do that all through my son, Jesus Christ. This is what's taking place here in this exchange. Cornelius and those in his household who believed were about to personally experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Peter's going to come. He's going to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit's going to descend. They're going to repent and believe, and they're all going to be saved. We'll get there next week. But I believe that Luke shares this particular incident in great detail, not just to magnify what's happening with Cornelius, but because it's a watershed moment in the history of the church. It's watershed. It's watershed for you, my beloved. If you are a Gentile, and most of you are, God was going to use Cornelius and his believing household for a much greater purpose. That through Cornelius, God would definitively show the eclectic nature of this new family that he was building in his son. That he was going to open up the floodgates of the gospel to go to the nations. That he was going to open up the doors, listen, of the church to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation that this family might truly be eclectic, wildly eclectic by comparison to the church today and certainly the church here in the West. No longer did you have to be a biological descendant of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that bloodline. No longer did you have to convert to Judaism, males getting circumcised and adhering to the dietary regulations and the kosher laws. No longer 
God here through Cornelius is showing that this great promise made to Abraham centuries before was going to be fulfilled. Genesis twenty-two eighteen, God said, through your offspring, he's saying to Abraham, through your offspring, Jesus Christ, what? You know this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations. Anyone who repents, anyone who believes, and anyone who follows Jesus Christ becomes a child of Abraham. Adopted into the family of God. Children of promise. Sons and daughters. Inside the family. No longer outside. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, then you are a product of this holy encounter between Peter and Cornelius and what God is doing 2,000 years ago. This is, my beloved, your family history. You say, no, I really don't. I'm not terribly interested in Cornelius or what happened. This is your history, and it's a great history. And you want to know it because you're part of it. So first we see in the calling of Cornelius, I pray, God's intent to include people from all walks of life in his family. It will be an eclectic gathering around the throne. When we worship Jesus, when he comes again in glory, and we look upon the, the, the numbers that he saved by grace through faith, we're going to be overwhelmed with the eclectic nature of that church. What a day that will be, a family like no other. Point number two, God's unified family. It's going to be eclectic, but not so eclectic that we're not unified because we're all one in Christ. Look at verse nine. Verse nine. The next day, as they, Cornelius' three messengers, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, they were going to Joppa, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So Cornelius' messengers, they make pretty good time. It's about a 30-mile journey from Caesarea to, to Joppa, and they couldn't just you know, get an Uber or, or, uh, or jump in their car and go. Um, they make really good time. They actually travel through the night, and they make it there by midday, by noon. And it, they just happened to arrive, just happened by chance, coincidence, not close, by God's providence, they arrive at Simon the Tanner's house the exact same time that Peter's on the roof praying and getting a vision from God. You say, wow, what an amazing thing. Well, that's what God does all the time. Simon's on the roof praying. Look at verse 10. Peter tells us this. And he, Peter, became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they, the servants, were preparing it, he fell into a trance. So in order to maximize the impact of this vision, he makes sure that Peter's really hungry before he sees it. That's good, right? God wants to do that. He maximizes the truthfulness of this, and he wants to take Peter's biological hunger and reveal a spiritual truth. And it's this, listen closely, that God makes clean through the blood of Jesus those saved by grace, and therefore they are no longer unclean. That God makes clean through the blood of Jesus, and therefore people that he saves by grace through faith are no longer unclean. Regardless of nationality, or language, or upbringing, or family name, or station in life, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, anyone saved by grace is made clean and brought into the family. Period. So God causes Peter to go into a trance. The word trance is ecstasis, where we get the word ecstasy. Probably not as you know it. Um, The better translation would be it describes a state of mind lifted out of one's natural surroundings. And in scriptures, it gives someone the ability to perceive supernatural impressions or supernatural visions. Look at verse 11. Peter's in this trance, and this is what he sees. Verse 11. He saw the heavens open. That's amazing enough, isn't it? And then something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth, 
Verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him from heaven that said, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. So, I mean, the, the vision itself is extraordinary. This gigantic sheet, there's debate, did it cover the earth? Did it look like it was covering the earth? It's big, okay? It's big. Comes down, and it's covered with animals and reptiles and birds of every kind. Some clean and some unclean, according to the Jewish dietary laws. Some that could be eaten and some that could not be eaten. And then a voice tells Peter, kill and eat what he sees, clean and unclean animals. Peter's response, he protests vigorously. Look at verse 14, Peter said, by no means, Lord. This is a vision from God. And either God or an angel speaking to him. And he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. It's, it takes us back a bit, doesn't it? It's reminiscent of, of Peter in John chapter 13 when they're in the upper room. And remember, Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. Remember what Peter said? Peter said in chapter 13 of John verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, all right. If, you, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Peter said, all right, wash my whole body. Remember? Peter's always extreme. But as a faithful Jew who had never violated the dietary laws of the Torah, he refused to listen to God. Now he's a Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is an apostle. And he's still not listening. He's still not hearing. Look at verse 15. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call unclean. Verse 16, this happened three times and then the thing, the sheet, was taken up at once to heaven. Three times, three times Peter resists. He said, oh, that sounds very familiar. Of course it does. Peter's resistance, though, reveals how deep-seated many of the old covenant teachings were and they were still hanging on in the church in Jerusalem. We're five years post-Pentecost, six years post-Pentecost, and yet still with someone like Peter, now Peter doesn't get it, well, you can pretty much argue the church is not going to get it, right? Still tied into the dietary regulation and the kosher laws. And so it required God to intervene supernaturally by giving a vision because Peter wasn't getting it. But God needed Peter to get it. He needed all the apostles to get it. He needed the church to get it. Get what? That this vision that he's had from the very beginning from Genesis chapter 1, was a people for his glory from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just Jews. So he had to bring this ecstatic, supernatural vision to bear upon Peter's heart and mind. So you say, well, what's going on with the vision? It's a sheet. It's always been one for me. You read it, and you're like, well, first of all, when I think of a sheet, I think of bed, right? So here this comes down to the sheet. You got animals and reptiles and birds of every kind, clean and unclean, and then he says, Peter, go kill, eat. What's going on? Many of the Mosaic regulations, especially those pertaining to ritual purification and cleanliness, all the kosher laws, what you could and what you could not eat, how food was to be prepared, who you could eat it with, how you would get clean if you touched something that made you unclean, they were given by God. Now listen, I know that, I know that you don't really enjoy reading through Leviticus, but they were given by God so that he could preserve his people Israel in the midst of foreign nations. So he could preserve them from worshiping idols. And so he gave them many of these codes and these regulations on cleanliness in order to preserve them through separation, to keep God's people and therefore God's promises to his people from being swallowed up by the foreign 
nations. And they were purposed, listen, they were purposed to last for a specific period of time. How long? Until the Messiah came, Jesus Christ, until he fulfilled the law perfectly on the cross and did what? And then made available by grace through faith in him all the promises of God to all the peoples of the world, right? So all these regulations were good and they had a time period, but when Christ came and fulfilled them, they no longer applied. Yeah, we're five years post-Pentecost and Jews are still practicing dietary regulations. Can I eat that? How is that prepared? Can I eat with that Gentile? Does that contaminate me? In other words, God is revealing to Peter that all the dietary and purification laws had been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And listen, they were no longer necessary. They run their course. He's saying lovingly, he's showing Peter in a vision, stop adhering to these particular laws. Jews and Gentiles now could sit down and share a meal together, regardless of what was being served and regardless of how it was prepared, regardless of whose home it was in. And Peter, therefore, could sit with Cornelius. That's the stage that's being set. But even more importantly, if the dietary laws no longer applied because they had been fulfilled perfectly through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then their original purpose no longer applied. To set the Jews apart from all other people no longer applied. How do I know that? Listen, Leviticus chapter 20. Why did God put these laws in place in the first place? He said, I am the Lord your God, speaking to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples, from the Gentiles. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean beast, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the Gentiles, that you should be mine. So that was the original purpose. But Christ has come through his life, death, and resurrection. He no longer, he's crushed that barrier, and therefore the laws do not apply. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, the separation has been destroyed. No need to separate. Cleanliness doesn't come through the law. It comes through Christ. And by the shedding of his blood, Jesus Christ brought the Gentiles in so that through faith he could do what? He could make one glorious, eclectic family that brings honor and glory to his Father. Ephesians chapter 2. This is to you, my beloved. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That was our state, was it not? But now, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, who, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself, listen to this, one new man, one new family in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. In other words, through the sacrifice of Jesus, Peter could have fellowship with Cornelius. Through the death and resurrection, through the spilling of the blood, Peter could sit down at a Gentile's table. Why? Because God had made them clean. The same blood of Jesus that per perfectly fulfilled the ceremonial 
laws on the cross also fulfill the moral law as well. Romans 10, 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for who? For everyone who believes. Not Jew, not Gentile, righteousness for everyone who believes. And therefore, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, is made clean, listen closely, in the eyes of God. And if a man or a woman is clean in the eyes of God, then they better be treated as clean by other people. If a man or woman is made clean by grace through faith in the eyes of God, then we, Christian, you better treat one another as clean in the eyes of God. In other words, this divine cleansing of food in Peter's vision, it's a parable of the divine cleansing of all people, Jew and Gentile, through faith in Jesus. It's the gospel. Look at verse 15 again. God said to Peter in this voice, what God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call unclean. It's a warning. It was a warning for Peter, and it's certainly a warning for us. Five, maybe six years post-Pentecost, and God's vision for his new family is becoming crystal clear. Christians, those born again by the Spirit of the living God, are to accept, to receive, and to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, full-fledged, blood-bought members of God's eternal family, regardless of nationality, skin color, gender, past life. This is God's design for his new family. This is God's vision and has been for the beginning of his new family. We want to be in line with that. And yet, my beloved, even here in our supposedly accepting culture of the West, the church remains, and you probably know this, one of the most segregated institutions in our country. Do you know that? Pew Research, this was just last year, indicated, listen to these numbers, 80% of American churchgoers, 80% attend services where a single racial or ethnic group comprises 80% or more of the congregation. Highly segregated. In fact, Lifeway, they did a study on this too, and this is what they write. Listen, Sunday morning remains one of the most segregated hours in American life. I hate that. Sunday morning remains one of the most segregated hours in American life with more than eight in ten congregations made up of one predominant racial group. And most worshipers, listen to this, they said, most worshipers like it that way. Two-thirds of American churchgoers say their church has done enough to become racially diverse. Enough. And less than half think that their church should become more diverse. And even here in the Bay Area, my beloved, where we are, I mean, we are very blessed to have the nations in our own backyard. You have Korean churches, you have black churches, Hispanic churches, Chinese churches, you have young churches, you have old churches, you have traditional churches, you have contemporary churches. We create all these barriers. God's people in the church creating all these barriers, still living under the curse of Babel instead of the blessing of Pentecost. Still, instead of loving and living and receiving one another, as one in Christ. One body, one spirit. And we not only create these barriers, my beloved, but once we do, we then justify them. We even try to justify them theologically. We claim freedom in Christ. I have freedom in Christ to gather with whomever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want. Or we 
become strategic in nature, or at least we think we are, and we target particular people groups by becoming and creating homogeneous churches. We even use personal preference as an excuse. I like this music. I like that type of preaching. I like this liturgy, that age group, that time of worship. That's why I'm here. A brother of mine, a former pastor of a, an Assyrian-speaking Persian church, he wanted his congregation to become more diverse. And I said, why don't you take a baby step? I said, why don't you seek out the Farsi-speaking Persian brothers and sisters literally right down the street? That's a good start for you. Instead of just being in a Syrian Persian church, be a Farsi-speaking Persian church too. And he said this, quote, oh, brother, I could, that could never happen. Assyrian Persians and Farsi-speaking Persians do not get along. They could never church together. We were at Pete's across the street. I almost fell out of my chair. He was saddened by it too. What a hateful statement to the unifying work of Jesus' cross. And yet this type of separation amongst Christians is replicated thousands of times over across the globe this very Lord's day. Even in churches that where the ethnic makeup is more eclectic, something like ours, there's often discrimination and judgment of another kind. I want you to think about this. The voice from heaven said to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common, do not call unclean. So do we love like this? Do we receive one another like this, my beloved? When someone is saved out of a life of homosexuality or fornication, are they treated like a clean brother or sister when their past is made known in the context of prayer in a church? When a pedophile or ex-convict or a drug dealer comes to a saving grace in Jesus Christ and joins a local church, are they loved and received as clean or unclean people? How about people that are just different? How do we receive them? Now I want you to be careful how you answer this in your heart, my beloved. Receiving someone into church membership and loving them as a brother and sister in Christ. They may be similar in principle, but they're very different in practice. Very different in practice. You may be okay singing and worshiping with someone very different than you in a corporate gathering like this, but do you let them into your home? Do you invite them to your table to eat your food? Do you bring them into your life and love them as Christ has loved you? Those are the harder questions for us who profess Christ. I'm afraid, my beloved, that we all have a long way to go in the sanctification of our own hearts when it comes to this matter, when it comes to accepting and loving one another as Christ loves us. Christ loves you. You want to talk about other. You want to talk about different. You want to talk about flawed before you were saved by grace. Christ loved you when you were dead and your sins. We are called to this. This is not optional. We are called to this as Christians, to love one another as Christ loves us and to love one another because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and enables us to do this, to go to those who are not like us and to get to know them to share the gospel with them, to make disciples of them, and add them to what? To God's eclectic family. That is the plan. Are we working to that end? All right, so we've seen God's design for his family is eclectic. It's unified. Can I give you one more? You're going to say yes anyway, right? But where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Lunch isn't ready yet. Number three, universal. God's universal family. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision 
that he had seen might mean. So he, he received it. He got it in part. He obviously knows it's dealing with the, the dietary regulations and the abolition of those regulations and the purification laws in the Torah. But there, he knows there's also a deeper understanding. And he doesn't get it yet. It, it, it requires more revelation. It's still a mystery to him. Verse 17, latter part. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, now listen, the Holy Spirit's going to speak to him. The Holy Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? So Peter's on the roof. He's hungry, waiting for lunch. He, he's been in prayer, and he's trying to figure out what was the vision. You think it was hard for you, this sheet descending, animals of all kinds, reptiles, birds, kill, eat. Peter's still trying to figure out what it means. And at the exact time, three messengers, those sent by Cornelius, they arrive, and they want an audience. And before Peter goes down, the Holy Spirit said to him, accompany them without hesitation. Why? The Holy Spirit said, I sent them. I sent them. They're here because of me. In other words, before meeting these men, before knowing where they were coming from, what their purpose was, Peter had been clearly instructed by the Holy Spirit to accompany them without delay. What a man of faith he was. What a man of faith we will see him become. Now, given the proximity of the vision to the Holy Spirit saying go, Peter, no doubt, he was not a stupid man, he no doubt said, there's a connection here. There's a connection between the vision, these men showing up, and the Spirit telling me to go with them. And so he understood they would be instrumental in showing Peter the deeper meaning of the vision of the sheet with the animals. So he asked them plainly, what is the reason for your coming here? Why are you seeking me? That's the right question. You're not just going to go with people randomly. Look at verse 22. The messengers, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. All right, so listen, this is not a normal encounter. First of all, we're dealing with angels and visions. That's not happening normally. But the messengers say that an angel appeared to a Roman centurion, and the angel said to this Roman centurion, who he should not be speaking to anyway, you have instructions to get Peter and bring Peter back to his house. What kind of house is that? It's a Gentile house. That's an unclean house. Peter says, I can't go there. I can't go into that house. What a shocking revelation in light of the vision that he just had, that an angel of God would appear and then direct a Gentile Roman soldier. And even more astonishing, that same angel sent by God wants Peter to go to this man's house, to sit at his table, to eat his food, to share a message. Of course, we know it's the gospel. Now, Peter's no dummy. The information they shared likely was pieces coming into this puzzle. And Peter was beginning to see and understand that the, the sheets with the animals to go and kill was a vision of the picture of the Gentiles coming into the church. He still didn't understand it fully. More revelation is going to be needed. He's going to see that when he gets to Cornelius' house. But he decides he's going to go and he's going to lodge in this house. Um, it's a monumental request for a faithful Jew, especially in light of his refusal to kill and eat. But he could ignore it. Why? The Holy Spirit said, you got to go. 
latter part of verse 23. So what did Peter do? He invited them in to be his guest. My beloved, listen, there are pieces of scripture that sometimes we read right by because they seem very fast. No big deal. This is huge. It, it was too late to begin the journey. We're talking 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. Too, too late to begin the journey back to Caesarea so they would set out the following day. But Peter does something extraordinary here. He invites Gentiles into Simon the Tanner's house who is a Jew. He invites them in to sit at the table, to eat food, and to spend the night. And it is a beautiful foreshadowing of what God is about to confirm with Cornelius' household and then accomplished to the ends of the earth. Jews and Gentiles eating at the same table, sleeping under the same roof, and worshiping the same God. Even before Peter meets Cornelius, the Holy Spirit begins to work on Peter's heart, enabling him to see the great commission. Not just Jerusalem, not just Jews, not just a little bit in Samaria, a little bit in Judea, but truly to the ends of the earth as Christ had declared. Every conceivable ethnicity, every conceivable background out of every religion and every walk of life, this is what Peter and Cornelius would set on the global stage. This is, my beloved, the work of the cross It is the work of the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 32, to his disciples, when I am lifted up from the earth, what? I will draw all people to myself. He didn't say when I'm lifted up, I will draw just Jews. All people to myself. All people, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation gained access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection. That's why, my beloved, you know, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, and he took his last breath, that tail, that veil in the temple that separated the inner sanctuary, the holiness of holies from the world was torn in two. He said, well, why did that happen? Because through the blood of Jesus Christ, access is now granted to Jew and Gentile, to God, into the house of God, into a relationship with God through Jesus' blood. No more standing outside the synagogue. No more standing in the, in the court of the Gentiles at the temple. No more dietary regulations. No more cleanliness laws. No more man-made division. All who would repent and believe in the risen Lord are made clean perfectly and permanently by the blood of Jesus. And if you're made clean in Christ, then you're all the way in. You're called into the house of God. You are a brother or sister. That is your objective reality in Christ. By receiving God's punishment for our sins in our place upon the cross, Jesus is able to draw and receive all to turn to, turn to him because he was treated unclean that we might be made clean. And by the shedding of his blood, he is able to make sinners like you and me clean forever. Forever completely forgiven. Even now in Christ you are as white as snow. Even now. Righteous. The righteousness received from Christ, able to commune and worship God in the fellowship of the saints. My beloved, Jesus, the second person of the holy triune God, he left his throne in heaven. He became a man to come to earth and commune with sinful man. He came to enter our homes 
and eat at our tables and be intimate with the least and the last of us. That's why you're here. The Son of God communing with sinful man. Now, if Jesus was willing to do this for you, to make you clean, to bring you into God's eclectic, unified, universal family now and forever, then a couple questions and I'll close in prayer. Should not we, out of the love that Jesus has for us, be going to others that are not like us? Shouldn't we? Out of the love that Jesus has for us and out of our love for him, shouldn't we be going to those who are not like us? Shouldn't we be crossing the lines of culture and age and ethnicity and economics and education so those in our mission field like Cornelius can hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, repent and believe and become members of this family too? We want this family to be bigger. We want this church to be full. We want all true churches throughout the world to be filled with those saved by grace through faith in Christ. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is strategically located to have this gospel impact. We live in a city, my beloved, where over 103 languages are spoke as primary languages in households every night. 103 languages. You don't have to go to the nations. The nations have come to us, people from all walks of life. And that means that we as a church can participate, like Peter, in this great ingathering by getting to know them. Who are they? Who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? Getting to know those who are different from you, very different from you, even separated by language. You can get to know them. You can befriend them. You can pray for them. You can share the gospel with them. You can lead a Bible study in your home with them. You can, listen, you can have them into your home. You can set the table for them. You can serve them in love. My beloved, listen, apart from all those who have gathered here in the Bay Area, apart from them hearing the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they will remain unclean in their sins outside of the family of God and destined for judgment. But because the gospel's for all people, you have fantastic, life-saving news to share. You do. You have a treasure to bring to the 103 languages in our backyard. You have something to give, and that's real hope for real people who do not know Jesus. The only question for us is, Will we? It's the only question. We know the hope in Christ. We know the message we're supposed to share. The question is, will we? Will we go out? Let's ask God right now to embolden us in light of this great encounter between the Apostle Peter and the Gentile Cornelius and ask God to embolden us to do what he's called the church to do, to go to the nations right here in San Jose. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our sin, unlike Peter's, is not one of ignorance. It is simply one of rebellion. We know the truth. We know the gospel. We know the hope of what it means to be made clean by the blood of your Son. I ask, Lord, that you would use this encounter between Peter and Cornelius, this floodgate that you opened up to the nations, 
and that you would be gracious with us and that we as a church would be mighty in the declaration and proclamation of Jesus Christ. That we would go to our neighbors and our, and our friends and the family who do, we do not know, those who are very different from us, that we would go, we would befriend them, we would get to know them, we would serve them, we would pray for them, we'd study the Bible with them. Lord, and we ask then in, in light of these efforts that you'd be pleased to bring about a great harvest, that you would save many here in our backyard. Tens of thousands surrounding this very church that do not know Christ that are destined for judgment apart from grace. I pray, Lord, you'd open our mouths, make us bold, that we might see the great work of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. In his name, amen.